Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy that our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us to slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Allie, for uh, reading for us this morning. Um, uh, for those of you who are maybe here for the first time or the first time in a while, we're uh, in a series on Paul's letter to the Galatians, and this is our third, our third, I think, in that series, and we're just sort of making our way through the chapters of this letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in what is now known as uh, Turkey. So uh, Paul writes this letter to these churches. These are churches that he originally had planted. They are going through some controversy over another teaching that has been brought to them by a group that gets labeled Judaizers. And Paul is writing a letter to them to refute the teaching of those Judaizers and explain to them why that teaching is false. And last time we looked at this, we looked at the second half of chapter 1, where Paul uh, basically uses his life story as proof that what he is telling them about this gospel is true. See, these false teachers had come into Galatia, had gone to these churches and said, you know, Paul, it's the Apostle Paul is the guy who told you all this stuff, right? And do you know who the Apostle Paul was? Do you know who that guy is? You can't trust what he's saying. And Paul says, you know what? Actually, let's look at my biography together. He does this sort of uh, rhetorical jujitsu on them, you know, using their strength against themselves. And he says, let's talk about me. I'm happy to talk about me. This is what I was. And it's only this supernatural gospel of Jesus Christ that can turn me from what I was into what I am now. That's what Paul did last time. Now, in the very first verse of chapter 2, which we're looking at this morning, uh, Paul continues his biography a little bit, but he's trying, to make a different, he's trying to make the same point, but it's a different part of his biography. He says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. And I want to just explain very quickly for you the timeline because there's a point to Paul giving this timeline. And I got I to gotta admit, it was hard for me to figure out how to tell you the point and then tell you the timeline. Uh, so I'm going to tell you the timeline and hopefully you'll get the point. So here's, here's, what, here's the timeline. 
Jesus, historians say, rose from the dead, the resurrection happened around 30 AD, ballpark. The Apostle Paul was converted, had his Damascus Road experience around 33 AD, ballpark again. It says here that after 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, he says that in three years, he went up to Jerusalem. And the reason is, is because he made two visits. After three years, so after three years after his conversion, he went for a very short visit to Jerusalem and left really quickly. But after 14 years, he went for a, a more significant visit in Jerusalem. And here's kind of what happened in the intervening years. After his conversion, Paul went into Arabia for three years. A lot of people don't know that. And the reason he went into Arabia for three years was for him to be retaught the Old Testament from what you could call a Christocentric perspective, meaning as a good Jew who was raised Jewish, he was taught to look for the Messiah through the lens of the Old Testament. But now that he's met Jesus and has discovered that Jesus is the Messiah, he has to go back and reread the Old Testament as pointing specifically to the person of Jesus Christ, because he didn't understand that the first time he learned the Old Testament. You get what I'm saying? I think you get what I'm saying. So that's what he did for three years. Then after that, he goes to a brief visit to Jerusalem and leaves very quickly, and he goes to Tarsus, which is his hometown. And he lives in Tarsus and stays in Tarsus for about 11 years, preaching the gospel to very largely Gentile people, people who don't have any Jewish history or background or anything like that. Then this guy named Barnabas, who's up in another city called Antioch, hears about Paul, hears that he's pretty good at uh, sharing the gospel with people who aren't from Jewish background. He goes down to Tarsus. He convinces Paul to leave Tarsus and go with him because he's got this multi-ethnic, really cool, multicultural church going on, church plant going on in Antioch, and Paul goes with him, and he, meet, and he teaches in that church for about a year, helping build it and encourage it, etc. And then a famine hits, and Paul takes up a collection for the poorest of all the churches that exist up until now, which happens to be the church in Jerusalem, and he takes that collection and he goes down to Jerusalem to meet privately with sort of the head of the church at that time, the three apostles that people are most familiar with, Peter, James, and John. Okay, that's it. Now, why am I explaining all of this to you? This is why. Remember, the whole thing that Paul is trying to emphasize right now to the Galatians is the fact that he, he is confident that this gospel that he's preaching is the true gospel. It is not a mistake. It's not made up in his head. It's not a misunderstanding in the Old Testament, of the Old Testament or anything like that. He's teaching the true gospel. Well, Paul spent at le up to at least 12 years preaching that gospel and that message before he went down to Jerusalem to con consult with the apostles. That's how confident he was. He gets converted. He gets taught by Jesus. And boom, he goes to work. He doesn't go to the like denominational head office or something and ask, you know, is this, am I, do I have this right? He doesn't get examined <laughs> by a group of ministers or anything and, and make sure that he's got, he's got his theology straight or whatever. He's off he goes, okay? And in verse 2, the reason he came back, he says, 
is, I went up because of a revelation, that is, he's learned that this false teaching has come into Galatia, and he set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And what he means by that is not, you know, I was making sure that, yeah, I, 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 it kind of hit me. Oh, I better check this out and make sure I'm saying the right thing. I better go down and make sure I haven't been teaching in vain because I've been teaching the wrong thing. What he means is, I'm concerned that my ministry is being undermined by false teaching and, and, and I'm going to have, like, I'm going to lose converts and I want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that's why Paul goes down to meet. The point is this, or another point is this, Paul's context in which he was sharing this gospel message was very, very different than the context that Peter and James and John were sharing it. He was in a largely Gentile context. They were in a largely Jewish context. And what that means is, is that he, he had to work much, much harder than they did at teasing out culture from the gospel. See, the question was, what's actually the, what do you need to believe to be saved? Do you need to believe that Jesus Christ lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died in order to be saved? Or do you need to believe that and you need to believe that you have to follow the circumcision laws and the Old Testament dietary laws and, and purity laws, etc.? That was sort of the question. Now, Peter didn't have to wrestle with that question as much because he didn't convert someone who was like, oh, do I need to get circumcised now? Because he was only preaching to Jews who had already been circumcised. You follow what I'm saying? Paul, on the other hand, he's, he's in like completely pagan territory, and he's got all these people who don't know anything about all this Old Testament stuff. They come right out of paganism. They are converted to Christianity, but then they hear about this Old Testament and this whole system of laws and stuff like that, and they're like, oh, am I supposed to be doing that? And Paul has to be very, very careful to emphasize or to figure out exactly what it is in this Christian faith that is part of the core of the faith. And what is, what is it that is a remnant of a cultural tradition? So, why is this relevant to us now? Because we're trying to plant a church that brings people from all kinds of cultural traditions together. There's a lot of people here from largely one sort of cultural tradition, but our hope and prayer is, is that over time, we, as we diversify, we're going to have people from all kinds of different cultural traditions who come into the faith, who become Christian, and we want to make sure that we're not emphasizing any cultural traditions as part of being a Christian uh, over the actual true gospel that is really the core of what it means to be a Christian. So let, you know, maybe some of you came from a tradition where, you know, if you're really serious about Christianity, you go to two church services on Sunday. And you might look at those churches that, we're still in the introduction, eh? You might look at those churches that, uh, that only meet once on a Sunday and go, well, can, you know, they're sort of, that's B-League. They're not quite as hardcore. They're suspect, you know? Maybe you come from a church tradition that... Uh, uh, Every week, you have a midweek prayer meeting. And those churches that don't do a midweek prayer meeting, they're like, well, they're not really serious about prayer. Really serious about... Are they... Re are like, 
I wouldn't go so far to say they're not Christians, but they're not hardcore like us. You follow what I'm saying? And these are all things because, and now I'm, I'm going a little ahead of myself, but don't worry about it, it'll work out. Uh, it's because we have all this tendency as human beings to want to not just rest in what Jesus did and be done with it, we want to justify ourselves. So we want to say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and yes, I did. he did die for me, and he lived for me, and yes, that's all I really need, but I also want to feel good about the fact that, you know, I, you know, I, I write a pretty big check to my church every month, or I'm, I'm always there for that midweek Bible study, and you know, Bob over there, he like hardly ever comes. We want to feel good about ourselves, about our own achievement. And it is a dangerous, corrosive, ugly acid that once it gets into the church, it can, it can turn a church into a very smug community or an extremely insecure community. I'm going to unpack all that now. Here's, here's the end of my introduction. This passage, which looks like, frankly, a little bit of a less interesting passage than some of the other texts that you could, you could read in the New Testament, is actually, it's huge. It is extremely important. It is massively important. And the reason it's so huge and massively important is because in this meeting that Peter, James, and John is going to have with the Apostle Paul, in this meeting hangs the future of Christianity. What is this faith going to be like? What's, is it going to, is it going to have, is it going to be Jewish? Is it going to be an extension of Judaism? Or is it going to be something completely different? This is going to set the trajectory for the next 2,000 years. So we're going to look at four things briefly together. We're going to look at the issue itself, what it is, what's at stake in the issue, why, like Peter gets really, or Paul gets really worked up over this, obviously. Why? what the verdict was in this meeting, and what's one result, what's one of the, the, the results or the blessings or the benefits that, res, that comes from this. And we could look at a whole bunch of them, but there's one in particular in this passage that we're going to look at for the sake of clarity and time and all that kind of stuff. Okay, here we go. First thing, what's the issue? And the issue, we don't have to take, excuse me, a really long time on this. It's right there in verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The issue is the truth of the gospel. You have two camps. You have the Pauline camp. You have the Apostle Paul who is saying, here is the truth of the gospel. You are saved entirely by God's grace through faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone, full stop. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. Stop. Don't say anything else. You have on the other side, you have, you are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and through the keeping of the Old Testament Mosaic laws. In other words, Paul's opponents were saying, it's true, not all Jews are Christians, but all Christians have to become Jews. Now, were they really saying that? Yes, they were really saying that. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, 
Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's right there. You got to do this. This is something you must do in order to be saved. So you have these competing views of what's called salvation. Now here's what's very interesting about this. There's two things that are very interesting about it. First of all, it's subtle. These, Ju- these Judaizers who were teaching something different, they were teaching a very subtle change in a sense because they were not saying, oh, you know, Paul was wrong about who the Messiah was and he got that all wrong and we're still looking for him or no, you don't need to believe in Jesus, you just need to have a sincere, be a sincere, hardcore, serious Jew. They weren't saying anything like that. They were saying, oh, yes, you must believe in Jesus Christ, of course. But you're just, you're just not quite there yet. There's this little addition that's required. You just got to follow these Old Testament laws. And of course, if you're, if you're entering into this faith and learning about the history of this faith and learning about the, the, the literature of this faith, you're going to discover the Old Testament. You're going to go, well, the Old Testament, that's good. The Old Testament is good. The Old Testament is what points to Jesus. And so the Old Testament laws, they must be really, really good too. And the laws were good. So it's a very subtle argument. They're pointing him back, pointing these people back to the roots of the Christian faith. And who could ever say anything negative about that, right? They were just saying, of course, we don't reject Jesus, but you just got to put, you got to put a little bit more onto it. It's like, it's like the, the recipe is good, except it needs one more ingredient, What's so bad about that? It has the ring of truth to it, okay? Now, maybe you're saying, hmm, that's interesting, I guess, in a very abstract way, but what on earth does that have to do with me sitting here right now? And let me just point out to you, this is what I was talking about even just a few minutes ago. What you need to understand is, is that the Bible says that this is how human beings are hardwired. So yes, we're talking about this theological controversy that happened in the beginning of the early days of the church some 2,000 years ago, but we're talking about you every day, right here, right now. This is what you are battling all the time. This sense that somehow you've got to do a little bit more. You've got to add a little bit of something. You're finding your, your identity or your sense of, look, okay, I just came back from vacation, right? Vacation, January happens, that's New Year's resolution time. I was like, I'm putting off all my New Year's resolutions till after my vacation, because I'm like, I'm not going to watch what I eat when I'm on vacation. So, you come back from vacation, you start the regimen. Up every morning, exercising, doing your quiet time, reading your Bible, hydrating like crazy, because that's one of my resolutions. And, And what happens? You start, you start going, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm not just feeling good, but I think I, I am good. You, you, for some strange reason, just because you're doing all these things, you're like, I am closer to God now than I was before. I am holier than I was before. I am, I am a better Christian than I was before. And all the while, forgetting the fact that not for a moment does God love you any more post New Year's resolution than he loved you pre-New Year's resolution. 
Because he's only always ever loved you based upon the work of Jesus Christ, not based upon how much you pray or how much you read the Bible or how much you exercise or how much you hydrate. But we do that. Or, or am I the only one? Please, somebody nod. That's what we do. So this is relevant to you here and now as much as it was relevant to them some 2,000 years ago. Let's go on to the second point. What is at stake in this battle? What's, what's really at stake? And Paul, in verse 4, explains what's at stake when he says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, and then he says, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us to slavery. Here's what was at stake losing freedom in Christ and being brought back into a life of slavery. See, Paul is saying if you add anything to the finished work of Jesus in your life, you will make yourself, you will voluntarily enslave yourself spiritually, religiously. And here's how this worked in Paul's context, right? The issue was circumcision and the clean laws, the purity law. Let's take, let's take the purity, the clean laws, as our illustration for this. What were the clean laws for? If you don't know what the clean laws were, if you go back to the book of Levitic, Leviticus in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll see all these strange laws. Don't touch a dead animal, makes you unclean. Don't eat shellfish, makes you unclean. Don't uh, go into a, uh, into a field and sow it with two different um, grains or seeds at the same time, makes you unclean. Don't take... Uh, two different types of, of clothing material and put them together and, and, you know, I don't know much about that, but it'll make you unclean. Like everything, it seemed, like everything made you unclean. And, and you read these laws, you're like, they're weird laws. But what was the purpose of these laws? The purpose of these laws was this. God gave them to Israel to show them as a constant reminder that they could never, ever, ever make themselves, on their own, acceptable to God. Never. It did not matter how pure of heart they tried to be, no matter how pure of behavior they tried to be, no matter how good they tried to be, no matter how kind and loving to their neighbors they tried to be, it would never, ever, ever work. It would never be enough. Because a Jew, when they read all those laws, they went through their life going, okay, don't touch this, all right, don't eat that, better not do that. And it was just sort of oppressive, and eventually they failed. They always failed. You couldn't, live, you couldn't do it forever, and so you'd end up unclean. And then you read, okay, now what do I got to do? Ah, okay, I got to take an animal, and I got to go to the priest, and we got to slaughter the animal, and blood's got to be poured out, and it's got to be sprinkled on me, and uh, I got to say this prayer, and okay, now I'm richly clean again, and boom. And you'd start the cycle over and over and over again. And, and in fact, the point was to show that no, no amount of trying and no amount of sacrificing over and over and over again was going to finally make you clean. And by the way, it makes sense. Like you cannot, if God is pure goodness and pure righteousness and pure holiness and he burns brightly with that, anything that is impure that comes into contact with it is going to be decimated by it. You know the old saying, cleanliness is next to godliness? That's where this, this is where that comes from. And so it was an excellent, excellent teaching 
mechanism. The problem is, is that over time, the Jews did what every person wants to do. We just talked about our sort of natural human inclination as human beings. They did what was, was they turned those laws into an actual way that they thought they could make themselves acceptable to God. And they built laws around those laws so that they said, okay, well, if I don't, you know, if you, if you have a law here and you have a fence around that law and another fence around that fence and another fence around that fence, if I just bust through the first fence, I haven't bust through, busted through the other two fences and then really broken the law, so I've only sort of, like, done a little wrong, not a, like a serious wrong, and so I'm still clean and I'm still pure. And so the Jews were at this point where they were saying to themselves, aha, we've figured it out. We've, we've figured out a way to make ourselves clean by keeping these clean laws. The problem was, was that that law therefore enslaved them and it turned them into either very insecure people who are always like, oh man, freaking out over whether or not they're in with God and acceptable with God and they're going over their day every day going, oh, did I touch a, you know, I don't know, did I step in, I don't know, did I touch a dead mouse when I was walking on, on my way to the store the other day? I can't remember. Well, better safe than sorry. I might be unclean. And so they were very insecure people. Or they were incredibly arrogant people like the Pharisees who said, yeah, we're clean and we're acceptable to God because we really follow the laws. And all you folk out there who just kind of play around with obeying the law, but you don't take it really seriously, you're out. And they were able to look down on other people. And you think, that's weird. (laughs) Like All these ancient people with their ancient hang-ups about guilt and purity and all that kind of stuff. But listen, come on. We all long for acceptance. That's what this is about. This is all about being acceptable to your God. And you say, well, I don't have a God. I'm not worried about being acceptable to God. Do you understand what a God is? Your God is the thing that you worship. Your God is your, the thing that you value more than anything else. The, the God, your God is the thing that you feel like you can never, ever, ever live without it. And for you, it might not be a transcendent being, but it could very well be another person in your life or another group of people in your life. See, being accepted is this sense that, that you are approved, that you're valuable, that you're worthwhile, and you will seek that approval, that value, that sense of worthwhileness, either from God or from other people. You can't give it to yourself. You'll look, in it, look at it from peers. You want your peers to accept you, or you'll want your parents to accept you, some kids, anyway, or you'll want your, friend, your, your friends or your co-workers or your employees or the business community to say that this person is a worthwhile, this person is valued, this person is good at what they do, and that's where your sense of identity will come from. Kevin O'Leary, oh, let me use Kevin O'Leary as an example. You, he's in the news right now, pretty interesting character, potentially the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. If you thought it was wild and crazy a year ago in the States, you know, it's our turn, I suppose. Uh, so Kevin O'Leary is a very interesting character. He's a, a, a wildly successful businessman, and he wrote an autobiography a number of years ago. And listen to what he says in his autobiography. Freedom is a gift I'm grateful for every day. Hi, good start, right? It is the result, he says, 
of a single-minded pursuit of the only thing that matters in business, money. I took great risks and made some hefty sacrifices to get here, and I'll do whatever it takes to stay here, because let me tell you, here is a very nice place. This is a man who thinks he's free. And how did he, how did he become free? His single-minded pursuit of financial success where he took great risks and made incredible sacrifices and now will do whatever it takes to stay on top where he is. Does that sound like freedom to you? That's slavery. You know, Bob Dylan said, everybody's going to serve somebody. And on the front of your bulletin where we, we put these quotes every once in a while, there's, there's a quote, well, not every once in a while, every week. Uh, the top quote says this. This is from Tim Keller. What many people call psychological problems are simply issues of idolatry. Perfectionism, workaholism, chronic indecisiveness, the need to control the lives of others, all of these stem from making good things into idols that then drive us into the ground as we try to appease them. Idols dominate our lives. And religious people can get sucked into that just like anybody else. I have on many occasions asked people, are you a Christian? And they say, well, not a very good one. Now, when you hear that, what do you, what do you think? Well, they must mean that they're not a very obedient Christian. They're not, maybe they don't go to church as regularly as they ought to, or maybe they don't do daily devotions the way they should, or maybe they don't serve on committees or get involved in their community, or how about this one? They don't evangelize much, if at all. But the point is this, anybody who says, when you ask them, are you a Christian who says, not a very good one, is not actually understanding the core of the gospel. They're saying that, yeah, Jesus died for me, etc., but my functional Savior, not meaning my true Savior, but the thing that I'm really looking to is how well I'm performing as a Christian. And Paul says that's slavery. When you embrace the true gospel, you can tell that voice in your head that is saying, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. You can tell it to shut up because you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Do you see why he's, now why he's so worked up about this? Why this is the, the future of Christianity is at stake? Because it's all about freedom versus slavery. Third thing, the verdict. What's the verdict? Verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. One scholar said these are the most important words in the whole letter. They added nothing to me. They added nothing to my, my letter. These friends should be amazingly soothing, soothing words for you. And here's why. If you are willing to do the hard work of looking deep into yourself and wrestling through the motivations for why you do the things you do, you will come, I think, to a pretty glaring conclusion. And that is, 
you really can't do anything without sinning. Nothing. You can't pray without sinning. You can't come to church and sit and listen to a sermon without sinning. I can't preach a sermon without sinning. We can't do anything without sinning. The best of our deeds, no matter how well-intentioned we'd like to say they are, they are actually tainted with sin. That's why the, apostle, or why the prophet Isaiah says at one point that all our righteousness are filthy rags. And you may be saying, that is awfully harsh. Come on. I mean, I know people don't like that. But if you really are willing to analyze yourself, you've got to admit that when you do good, okay, you do something good, you do a good deed, right? And it hardly gets acknowledged at all. Why do you feel resentful? Don't tell me you don't. I still remember, it hit me like a punch in the face. I tell this story whenever I can. My wife and I are, she's pregnant with our third child. We've had two little babies in the house I'm a youth pastor, and uh, my wife is cleaning houses. Like She's like eight months pregnant, cleaning houses. We're trying to make ends meet. I know, violins and all that. But I'm talking about her. It was tough for her. And I come home one day on a Thursday, and I say, guess what, babe? I worked really, really hard this week, and I worked hard to rearrange my schedule so that tomorrow, Friday, uh, you can do whatever you want. You have no response. I'll take the kids, and I'll take care of everything. You do whatever you want. And she just looked at me, and she said, thanks. And I was like, thanks? That's it? I resented the fact that I didn't get the response that I was looking for. What is wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong with me. Deep down in the very recesses of my heart where I do not want to look, there is a selfishness there that is constantly trying to eat away even at the greatest seemingly altruistic things that I do. It's, it's like that nightmare. You know that nightmare that you have when you're, you're running? And no matter how hard you run, whatever it is that's chasing you, and sometimes you don't even know what it is, but you're terrified the thing is gaining on you and it's, it's going to get you and you try everything in your power to escape it, but you simply cannot escape it and it's depressing and terrifying. That's how sin is. It's constantly chasing us and constantly trying to cling to us. And the gospel says, that doesn't matter. Do you understand that? The gospel says... Yeah, sin is clinging to you and it's constantly chasing you, but you gotta, your problem is, is you don't realize that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus did it all for you. He lived a perfectly sinless life on your behalf. He was chased by sin just like you, but it was never able to touch him. And then he died a, a, a substitutionary death. He just died in your place, on your behalf, to wash away your sin. And so you can wake up and the nightmare is over. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to wonder, am I doing it? Am I, am I doing it well enough? And it's amazing that in this passage, Peter, James, and John, they all agreed with Paul and they said, yes, it is done. The voice of the slave master is finally silenced. You're free. You know why 
I, I rediscovered why we love vacation when I went on my vacation. Maybe it's because, well, I shouldn't say that because I went without kids, but that maybe, have, maybe helped. Uh, I woke up every day and I went, wow, like no responsibilities, none. I am accountable to nobody. I have no obligations today. You know, those of you who have been maybe Christians for a long time, you know, why do you love Sunday afternoon? Because you can nap without guilt, right? This is the one time where there isn't something saying, well, you shouldn't be resting, you should be doing this or doing that. Or somebody's calling you. If you're a mom, if you're staying home with little kids, they're asking you for this and you got to do this. But Sunday afternoon, you just, you say, nobody's got a claim on me. That's what the gospel does to your soul. Nobody's got a claim on you because Jesus has the claim on you. Second quote. That's why the second quote from Keller is there. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Now, when that sinks in, some things will happen. There will be results and that's our last point. When that sinks into us, there's some results. And what's the result that we see here this morning? Verse 9, when James and Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. It's in this phrase, they gave the right hand of fellowship. Now, this is not a fist pump. It's not props. They didn't say, yo, they didn't even bro hug. It's deeper than that. This idea of right hand of fellowship, it it gets across this this notion of of we, we have fidelity. We are a brotherhood. We are committed to one another in our common cause, which is this message, message that it's only through Jesus that we are saved and through faith alone that we are saved. We've got each other's backs on this. We're tight. You know, like, like when you watch Band of Brothers and you see all these guys who don't get along at the beginning of the movie, but then at the end of the movie because they've done all these things together and sacrificed for one another, they're tight. They're, they're, they're tighter than they are to their own blood relatives. That's what's going on here. And, and, and you say, okay, that's what's going on here. But think back to last week. Who was, P- who was Paul? This is the first time Paul is going in to meet with Peter, James, and John. And, and they've known him his previous repu- by his previous reputation, right? He was the church killer. He was the destroyer. He was public enemy, or at least for the church, public enemy number one. And he walks in and they embrace him as one of their own. This is incredible. And I was racking my brain, where can we... How can we drive this home? And some of you may be familiar with a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom uh, wrote a book called *The Hiding Place*, based upon her experiences of being caught by the Nazis and put in work camps, concentration camps by the Nazis, and she survived. And she tells about her experiences. 
And in that book, she tells this experience of having spoken in a church in Ravensbrook. And after the service, she had talked about forgiveness and grace and all that. And after the service, uh, an, the SS guard, okay? So the Nazi SS guard who, who oversaw the showers walked up to her. And he walked up to her. And it says this, she says in her book, He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. So just so full of joy and happiness, okay? And he says, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that as you say, He has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And then she says, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Now, don't forget, this is a guy who probably was standing at the door in the concentration camp while Corey Ten Boom and other women were, were forced to undress and shower as like, like cattle in these, these corrals. And, and he was probably standing there leering at them and, 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 uh, and treating them terribly when they were on their way out, you know, like, like animals, like property. And now he's trying to shake her hand. And so she says, I couldn't shake my hand. I couldn't get my hand up. Well, you and I are all going, eh. if your hand comes up, it should probably be to plow them one. But listen to what she says. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't. I felt nothing. Not the slightest, slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger, a love for this stranger, that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Hmm. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Thank you for the incredible message that there is nothing we can do to earn your favor and for if it would sink into us what it could do to us. Father, may we be people so rooted in that truth that uh, an, an, a warmth, a gentleness, uh, a invitingness, if that's a word, um, to the world that is so caught up in trying to fit in through its achievements, whatever they may be, uh, would would be just drawn like a moth to a flame, would be drawn to you, 
Do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.